Titus chapter 1. Thanks, Rich. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, in which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced, because they are disrupting the whole household by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true, therefore rebuke them sharply, so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient and unfit for doing anything good. Thanks, Bridge. Keep your Bibles open, friends. Ben, have you got FOMO about building a recording studio in Fiji? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> thought so. That sounds fun. Um, there's an outline, too, on the back of your handout, if you want to follow along, if you want to take notes, if you're a note-taking type. I'm going to pray, and then we'll dive into Paul's letter to Titus. Loving Father and Almighty God, we thank you so much for your word and its goodness and its truth. Father, we know and thank you that your word is fit and useful for training us in godliness. Lord, we pray tonight that you will grow us in godliness and also inspire us to commit all the more to knowing the truth of, the, of your word found in the Bible, that we might grow all the more in godliness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When I started working for Jono, it was 11 and a half years ago, full-time, 10 and a half years ago, 10 and a half years ago, wow, we've been around together for a while, Jono, haven't we? Uh, part of my role was teaching high school scripture, high school SRE at Lizzie Mac, and uh, I just finished Bible college, I'd never taught high school SRE before, and it was pretty full-on at the start, just there uh, for me. Um, many of the kids at Lizzie Mac were amazing, most of them actually, um, and I enjoyed spending time with them immensely. And some of them became good friends, a youth group, actually. Um, some were pretty rough and clearly from troubled backgrounds. Um, not evil brutes and lazy gluttons, but pretty full on, um, some of them. I um, remember my first lesson well. I was standing up the front being introduced to the class by Mrs. Newton, who was a lovely Christian lady who worked at the school. She's since retired. And um, as she was introducing me to the class, one of the students came in late 
And he said, this is FNBS, and he stood behind the door. And I thought, well, here we are. <laughs> I've arrived. This is interesting. Um, I got to know that guy a little bit. We worked ourselves out, me and that guy, later on, so that was all right. Um, to say I was nervous would be a massive understatement. I was, I was mildly terrified, and I just wonder if that's how Titus felt as Paul sent him into Crete. Uh, Crete was full of people who didn't follow the Lord, full of people who were lawless, I suppose. Now, in time, I learned that the kids at Lizzie Mac need the gospel, just like me. And they responded to the gospel as well. And I saw kids who come from all different sorts of backgrounds and had different issues, just like me, respond to God's word and grow in godliness and truth. I saw our lunchtime group grow as the gospel was preached to them and as I gave them Bibles and they read it for themselves. And I saw um, kids more and more start to transition over to youth group where they learned more of the gospel and they grew even more. As it turns out, I was given a great blessing, just like Titus, of seeing God's transforming grace at work through his word, Elizabeth MacArthur High School. And it was a wonderful blessing to me to see that up close. Now, if you look again, look again just there at verse 12. I'm going to get you to kind of cast down a bit and then we'll go back. When it described the people in Crete as always lies, evil brutes, lazy gluttons, I wonder how you respond. How do you feel as you read that? Are you thinking they're clearly a lost cause? What's the point? of sending Titus there. It's a waste of time. I wonder, are you thinking Paul's some sort of cruel boss who's sending his young Padawan into the lion's den? Like, Paul should be going there himself rather than sending Titus there. What a mean. Or are you thinking, Paul's richly blessed Titus by sending him to Crete amongst all these different kinds of people with this golden opportunity to see the powerful and transforming work of God's grace at work in Crete. Well, in the first three verses, we'll go to the next slide, the next slide. <clears throat> Sorry, I didn't have the first transition, did I? That's good. The first three verses of the Apostle Paul's letter to Titus are really rich with truths about the gospel, and we're going to spend probably half our time just in these first three verses, and we're going to move through the rest of the chapter a little more quickly. So, open your Bible to make sure that what I'm saying is what's written down in God's Word. And we'll read verse 1 together again. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further, in order to further the faith of God's elect, and also their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Paul describes himself as a servant of God and as an apostle. The biblical definition for an apostle is one who was witnessed to Jesus' life and then commissioned to go out into the world and preach the gospel. Also, apostles were often pioneer church planters. They were the first ones to start churches. And this was certainly the case for Paul, who started the church in Corinth, and now for Titus, who was planting churches in Crete. Paul describes Titus in verse 4 as his true child in the common faith, which is unusual language for us we might often refer to one another as brothers and sisters in christ but rarely would we refer to someone who we're not related to as a father or as a child as a son or daughter 
But this is the relationship that Paul shares spiritually uh, with Titus. He sees him like a son. He's discipled him, he's taught him the gospel, and now he's commissioned him uh, to go to Crete and plant churches. <clears throat> Paul's given role and goal in life, we're told, in his first verse, is to further the faith of God's elect. Paul lives and longs to see people respond to the gospel with saving faith and then grow in response to the gospel. Paul preaches the gospel to all people and as he does so, he's confident that God's elect, his chosen ones, will respond in faith and repentance. So he preaches all the more, knowing that some will respond because God has chosen them. Be of good heart in your evangelism, my friends. Not all people will respond, but some will if God has chosen them. Faith is what brings people from spiritual death to spiritual life. And we're told as much in Ephesians chapter 2. And I just want you to look at, um, keep going. That's it. Okay, just for that first dot point first. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says, You were dead in your transgressions and sins. We were lifeless without the desire, without the um, ability to change our state, to put our trust in Jesus. Dead people can't do anything, can they? Dead people can't put their trust in Jesus. Dead people can't accept the gospel. And that's what we all were, dead in our transgressions and sins. It takes an act of God to bring a dead person back alive, even spiritually. Some years ago, I was called to Campbelltown Hospital to meet with a lady whose husband had just died. And I went into the hospital, they took me in through emergency, and I met the lady, and she sat down on one side of her husband's corpse, and I sat down on the other side, and I read the Bible to her across his dead body, and I prayed for her and her family and the loved ones of this man across his dead body. Now, I couldn't pray for the man because he'd already died. I couldn't tell him the gospel because he couldn't respond because he'd already died. I could preach my very, very best sermon I've ever preached to the man and he couldn't possibly respond because he was dead. Ephesians 2 says that we were dead in our transgressions and sins, spiritually, unable to trust in Jesus, unable to respond in faith. And God needs to send his Holy Spirit into our hearts to change our hearts, to make us alive, it says in verse 4. Look at the second dot point. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you have been saved. So Paul's goal for the church is to see people made alive, through faith given them from God in response to the preaching of the gospel. And then, once transformed, once made alive, his goal is for them to grow in godliness, to become more Christ-like in their lives, to grow in faith. And I think this ought to be our goals for us. This, this ought to be, friends, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, your primary goal for yourself is not the best market school so you get the entry into the thing it's not the great marks at uni so you can get the job doing the whatever it's not the girlfriend or the boyfriend or the job or the house or the car 
your primary goal for yourself, if you're a Christian, is godliness, is Christ's likeness. And it's God's word, the truth, that transforms us. It's, it's God's word that changes us to be more like Jesus, to be more godly. And nothing else will make us more godly other than God's word. Now, this much is clear, this transforming work of God's word is clear in the NIV translation of verse 1. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. God's word leads to godliness. But at the same time, those who have been transformed, who are living godly lives, display the truth in, at work in them by their godliness. And this much is true in the ESV translation. So if you look at the next dot point, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. It's a bit different, isn't it? So does the truth lead to godliness or does godliness lead to the truth, lead to truth-telling? Well, I'm going to get you to debate it with the person next to you, if you feel comfortable. You've got 30 seconds, turn to the person next to you. Does the truth lead to godliness or does it, is it godliness that leads to truth? 30 seconds, go. Does it? Ooh, two on one. All right, five, four, three, two, one. Great. Who thinks? Who thinks it's the? Be bold. Like put yourself out there. Who thinks the truth leads to godliness? God's word leads to godliness. Who thinks godliness leads to truth? We just found out who's got the NIV and who's got the ESV in their laps. No. Who thinks it's both? Yeah, I think it's both. And that was a bit of a minister trick question, wasn't it? Um, I think both are true. I think God's word most definitely grows in us, teaches us how, what it means to be godly, and gives us the will and the desire to live a godly life. At the same time, as we live the godly life, we speak God's truth into the world, don't we? So both things are true. But in Titus, I think Paul is mostly referring to the first one, the truth that leads to godliness. After all, Titus is in Crete. And there are two different, very serious kinds of ungodliness happening, which we'll look at a little, in a little while. So it's so important that Titus goes into Crete and gathers some good people around him to preach the truth that will transform ungodly people into godly people, that will see people saved and live godly lives. So the truth needs to work and transform people's lives in Crete. Knowledge of God's truth fosters in us an understanding of what it means to live a godly life and through the work of the Holy Spirit grows in us a desire to lead a godly life. And we see in our lives that 
this godliness in us permeates not only us but also our families around us as we live a godly life. It permeates our school and our friendship groups, our universities, our workplaces, our community. This godly life permeates, it ripples out, like a stone in a pond, it ripples out through the people around us. And then, even more, as we work together as a church, as a team leading godly lives, we can really make a significant impact on our community together as a church. The last thing I want to point out in these first few verses is, I need to click out, I'm just going to do it myself. There we go. It's there. Is the context for our godliness. Our godliness as Christians, our ministry, our serving Jesusness has eternal consequences. A commitment to godliness, friends, can have everlasting consequences. If you want to make a difference in the world, if you want to be an influencer in the world, be godly. That's the best influence you can have in the world. So, I'm going to read the chapter again, but I'll do the first bit fast. So back to verse 1, Paul, servant of God, apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now, at his appointed season, he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour, writes Paul. Godliness has eternal consequences. It's from the beginning of time and it's to the end of time. And its purpose is to grow people, to grow one another in here, to grow people outside who don't know Jesus yet. You know when you fill out one of those forms that ask you for your occupation? You know, you've got the drop-down thing and you're like, oh, what am I? Have you ever seen one of those? You fill out one of those online forms yet? Which one am I? Oh, none of these. The one that I most clearly often have to tick is minister of religion which is just puke (laughs) i hate ticking that it's just minister they're the people that work in canberra aren't they the ministers right no one knows what minister really means and religion i hate that word it makes me feel icky i want to say i'm a builder because that's what our church is about our church is about building people up in the faith that's what paul was about building people up in the faith, building more and more churches. I want to tick, build up. Ministry is about building, and it's not about temporary building. That's what Apple and Samsung do, isn't it? They make temporary things. They make things that last at most 12 months, so you have to buy another one. We as a church are in the business of eternal building. Our building has everlasting consequences and god made our building plans for us before the beginning of time try and wrap your head around this on a sunday night friends god in his forward planning in love predestined his precious children to be saved to be adopted to become co-heirs with christ who sits in heaven and in love he's given us this work to do in his name that has eternal consequences as you study your bibles you learn the truth and you grow in godliness and that godliness manifests itself in you and your families and your friendship groups and your schools and your universities and your workplaces and your neighbourhoods, your TAFEs. I went to a couple of different TAFEs, it was great. 
as you practice godliness, you fulfill a divine and eternal plan that was set in place before the beginning of time and has eternal consequences. And those whom you are godly towards are the beneficiaries of your godliness. They actually encounter Christ in your godliness. And the Father sees your godliness and delights in your godliness. It matters a lot. Your greatest priority for yourself as a follower of Jesus, godliness. As Christians, we don't do good because we have to. We do good because we love Jesus. And it's such a delight. And we want to honour him. And we want to share him in the world. We want to be like him. This good, no matter how small it is, it's one-to-one with your friend or whatever it is, this godliness on display in you was planned for you before the beginning of time and has eternal consequences from you in the person to whom you are loving, you are being godly towards, you are sharing the gospel with. Isn't that incredible? Like, isn't that exciting? Godliness. And we can work together as a whole church to have this impact on the world. And this is Paul's goal. Night Church at the Hub. Try and wrap your head around this. Night Church at the Hub was divinely planned before the beginning of time. And God has given Night Church at the Hub work to do that has consequences that stretch into eternity. You're sitting in the most significant meeting in the world. More significant than the meetings that go on in Canberra. More significant than the meetings of the UN. This is where the action's at, friends. This gathering, these people, you have eternal consequences for your actions in the world. Look at verse 3 again, if you're still not convinced, and be amazed. How would you finish the sentence? The hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through, surely you'd say Jesus. And you'd be right to say Jesus. Eternal life has certainly been made manifest through Jesus, been made possible through his death and resurrection. But that isn't what it says. The hope of eternal life is manifest through the preaching entrusted to Paul by the command of God our Saviour. The preaching that was entrusted to Titus and to Timothy. The preaching that was then passed down through people and through the ages right down to us. The passing on of God's word. Preaching, teaching, sharing the gospel. Not just what I'm doing, but sharing the gospel Sharing biblical truths with one another, with your friends who don't know Jesus. As you do this, as you speak the gospel into people's lives, as you tell the truths of the Bible to people, people encounter Christ in you. Do you realise that? People encounter Jesus as you speak his true words in godliness. His Holy Spirit is at work in you as you speak his truth. People encounter Christ in our words. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God and that Word is Jesus. In God's Word, we encounter Jesus. As you share God's Word, people encounter Jesus. So it's so important to take the next step beyond having a 
gospel conversation with your friends and invite them to read the Bible with you. Over the last few years, I've invited six men to read the Bible with me and I didn't really expect any of them to say yes. And four of them did say yes. Four out of six. That's a pretty good strike rate, eh? I need to invite more, obviously. And you do too. How many hundred people would we be reading the Bible with together if over the next three years we just invited six each and four of them said yes? There's a great resource which I've, it's with all six I've invited and four of them have the Word one-to-one. It's called the Word one-to-one. I will permit you to Google it right now on your phone if you want. Mid-sermon. The Word one-to-one. It's this fantastic resource. It's put in a a short book form, it's got notes around it and kind of pretend sticky notes and background to the, the text and it explains the Bible, it asks the questions that they should be asking and it answers the questions that you should have but maybe you don't have and that's okay because it's right there uh, in the book for you. It's great, the word one-to-one. And it's not it's not an intimidating entire Bible like this. This is pretty intimidating first time you pick it up. It's, it's short, it's John's Gospel, it's great. I highly commend and i've just said to my friends would you like to read the bible with me we can meet up once i'll pay for coffee we'll do it once and if you don't like it that's fine and if you do we'll keep going and every time they kept going so far all right that was the first three verses (laughs) four hours to go get comfy no we'll skip through the next couple of bits sadly i'd love to spend another 40 minutes on each bit there's so much in here it's gold anyway point two what godliness looks like titus knows the gospel he's got the gospel with him it's gospels in him paul's commissioned him to go to crete and find more men like him people who know the gospel who display the gospel in the way they live they're godly and then he wants him wants sorry he wants titus to place them strategically around crete in different churches to share the gospel verse 5 the reason i left you in crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as i directed you an elder must be blameless faithful to his wife a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient titus has to find some elders to lead the various churches more college wasn't invented yet not quite up and running just yet so he has to do it himself it's his job And then Paul's given him a checklist of qualifications. Um, Leave that there for me, that's great. Blameless doesn't mean perfect, um, but it does mean above reproach. The elders need to be godly men, and they need to be known to be godly men. It's clear that they're godly men. They're godly men in public and they're godly men in private. They do their very best to not only be godly, but appear godly. So they're, they're... by and large, blameless, not open to the charge of godlessness. Secondly, faithful to his wife. In other words, a one-woman man. He's not a perfect husband. No husband is. But he loves his wife and he keeps his hands and his eyes off other women. Secondly, he's got believing children. Now, again, it's up to God whether or not his children grow up to be adult Christians. But for now, whilst they're young... This, the elder reads them the Bible, he teaches them to pray, he teaches them to behave well, and he takes them to church every week. 
They're permitted one or two rebellions. Of course they are. They're children. But for the most part, they're good kids who at least for now and hopefully forever say they love Jesus. Now, since elders or overseers manage the church, they ought to be able to manage their own lives and households, and that makes sense. So here's a further catalogue of qualities. Now, note that back in the old days, you were allowed to tell people what not to do as well as what to do. In fact, often in the Bible, the right thing to do is set in the context of the wrong thing to do. You were allowed to say, don't do that, that's wrong, back in the days. We'll get back there once we all get over ourselves and realise it's helpful to tell people what not to do and what to do instead. I could spend 10 minutes on each item, I really could, but I won't, um, unless you really want me to. No, didn't think so. Um, I'm going to kind of whip through them until I get towards the last couple of ones I want to dwell on just a little. So elders should not be overbearing. They shouldn't be quick-tempered. They shouldn't be given to drunkenness. They shouldn't be violent. They shouldn't pursue dishonest gain. That means they're not in it for themselves or the money or the prestige or, worst of all, to impress ladies. They're in it for Jesus and to glorify him. They're in it to see people grow, come to faith and grow in faith like Paul. Okay, so that's what he's not to do. Rather, he must be hospitable. Hospitable means you welcome people into your home and you're ready to welcome people into your home. One who loves what is good, self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined, have lumped together. They seem to be working together here. These men are godly and they're consistently godly. They're disciplined in their godliness. The way they think, speak and act is godly. Not perfect, but for the most part, they're a wonderful example to others. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. This came up in Sam's sermon in 2 Corinthians. And here it is again. Teaching is, not, teaching is certainly about encouraging people on what is right to do, but it's also about refuting those who are wrong. Telling people, elders, leaders in the church are supposed to encourage you to do what's right and tell you when you're doing what's wrong let you know when you're in sin when you know when you've misunderstood the bible these men know the bible for themselves they know the truth and they help people to understand it tell them when they're right tell them when they're wrong as ministry leaders in our church if you're in leadership in our church if you're a minister or a growth group leader or a youth group leader or a kids club leader or a kids' church leader, or a preschool leader, or a creche leader. You need to know your Bible. You need to be reading your Bible, learning your Bible. If you're not reading your Bible on a regular basis for yourself, you shouldn't be a leader. And you should ask for help to read your Bible better or resign. Leaders need to know the truth so they can teach people in their care how to live godly lives. I reckon if you've been in church a long time and possibly been corrected by your minister, you know you've got a good minister who's doing his job well. Now, I think we find it very hard to accept criticism. And I think we find it very hard to give criticism, probably more, even more so. Um, I know I do, 
I find it hard to confront people in their sin and their failings. Um, and it's particularly hard in this culture. But our godliness is at stake. We need people to be doing this for us, to be confronting us in our ungodliness so that we might be godly. I think our church's godliness is at stake if we're unwilling to criticise in love, to refute mistruth. And if we're unwilling to accept criticism in love, I think our church's godliness is at stake and I think our impact in the community is at stake. It's big stakes. I don't give criticism particularly well. I don't take it particularly well. I think I'm doing better than I was a year ago and the year before that, but I think I need to do better again. And perhaps you do too. Perhaps you need to be able to take godly criticism better. And perhaps if you're in leadership, you need to be willing to give godly criticism more in love. Maybe you don't, but I suspect many of you do. Now, if you feel like that was harsh, block your ears before we get to the last part of the chapter, because <laughs> Paul's about to unload. Um, I think this is a great catalogue for a godly leader. And I think it's something worth asking ourselves, is this what our leaders are like? And if they are like this, encourage them, praise them, pray for them to keep being like this and to be like this all the more. Pray for your leaders. If you are a leader, in what way do you need to do better from this list? Ask for help. Be humble and ask for help. Ask someone in leadership over you to help you and to pray for you to be more like this. Now, here's a question. Which qualities on this list don't apply to every Christian? Mm, go back. Here's a question, eh? They all apply, don't they? They all apply to all of us. <laughs> the elder should be really above reproach in all these things, but as a follower of Jesus, I can't see anything up there that we ought not aspire to ourselves. And perhaps we need to ask for help in and pray about. All right, next slide, thank you. Church leaders, elders need to know the truth, know their Bibles and model the truth so they're not blown back and forth in the crucible of church and community. And this is especially true for Titus and his elders as they attempted to minister in Crete where rebellion and godlessness existed on both ends of the spectrum. I'm going to read it again. Please open up your Bibles if you've closed them. Verse 10. There are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they're disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. And notice that in that last verse, Paul has lumped together both the circumcision group and the Cretans in the same kind of descriptions, the same 
um, accusation, detestable, disobedient, unfit for doing anything good. So on one end of the spectrum, you've got this circumcision group, the Pharisees, the Judaizers. These are the guys who depend on the law to be saved. They depend on their good works, on themselves, in order to be saved. And not only that, but they're pushing their teaching onto others, verse 11. Their motivation is their own dishonest gain, probably money, definitely status. So these are the saved by law guys. And on the other end of the spectrum, you've got the average Joe Cretans, liars, brutes, gluttons, not interested in law keeping whatsoever. And Paul gives the same diagnosis for both. Both are detestable, disobedient, unfit for anything good. Another word for these guys over here, these doing whatever they want guys without a care in the world is licentious. And licentiousness, friends, is alive and well today in our world and made all the worse, I think, through modern science and modern technology. A woman's right to choose has taken away basic human rights from unborn people, leading to a massive increase in abortions the past few decades. Dignity at the end, aka euthanasia, is taking away elderly and sick people's right to life. And the supposed massive increase in gender dysphoria is fueling a generation of young people tricked into believing that gender is their choice, not God's choice. Did you know that 50 years ago, 0.03% of people struggled with gender dysphoria and all of them were males? And today we have this massive issue, a real issue, with gender dysphoria. We live in a world that teaches us and tells us we can make these choices for ourselves that are for God to make. Law keepers, law breakers, neither seeking God. And it reminds me very much of the story of the two sons in the Bible, often known as the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son was the one who took half of his father's stuff and he ran away he took half his inheritance, he ran away, he squandered it on wild living, he was a lawbreaker, and then he came crawling back to his father, and his father in love welcomed him back, much to the disgust of his other brother, who was a law keeper. He was the one working hard in the yard all the time, and not because he loved his dad, because he wanted the other half of his dad's stuff, and he was filthy when his dad welcomed his law-breaking brother back in with open arms. Law keeper, law breaker, neither have love for God. And this is the people who Titus is preaching the gospel amongst in Crete. And Paul says, refute them sharply, rebuke them harshly for the sake of the faith, for the sake of godliness. Don't allow it to go on. Don't sweep it under the carpet. Don't ignore it, but refute them sharply. This is what he and his elders were called to do. So what does this mean for us tonight? Well, I've got an exciting encouragement and a stern warning. You have an opportunity to make an eternal impact in the lives of others around you. The first thing you have to do is pick up your Bible and read it. And God promises you, as you read it, you will grow in godliness. And God promises you, that this godliness will have eternal consequences in those around you. God works mightily by his Holy Spirit 
through our godliness. I saw it firsthand in the wonderful students at Lizzie Mack as they responded to the gospel and grew in godliness. People will encounter Jesus in your words and love and actions if you know your Bible and seek to live the way it says to live. Secondly, you'll become ungodly if you neglect the truth. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you don't read your Bible, if you're falling asleep in sermons, if you're lazy and non-committal with your growth group, you will slide slowly but surely into either lawlessness, sinfulness, or law-keeping. Phariseeism, you can slip into that if you're not reading your Bible. You start to think in your mind, you have to go to church to somehow please God. You have to go to growth group and you miss growth group and now you feel really bad about that and I'm supposed to read the Bible and I can't remember why, but I know I'm supposed to and I didn't and now I feel guilty and I've made up all these laws for myself and I'm failing all of them and I've completely forgotten grace because you're not reading God's word. We need to commit to knowing the truth by reading God's word and God's promise is to grow us in godliness. Godliness is a joy for Christians, a blessing, an opportunity to fulfill God's plans and have eternal consequences on other people. I'm really excited about this letter. I think it's awesome. Please dive into it deep. Let me pray. Loving Father and Almighty God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for Paul and for Titus. God, we pray that we will drink deeply of your word, the truth, and that you will keep your promise as you always do. You never lie and grow us in godliness. We pray that through our godliness, we will encounter Christ in one another and those we know who perhaps do not know Jesus and trust in him will encounter Christ in us. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.